My name is John. I am one of the home group leaders at Awaken, and I have the privilege of just sharing the Word of God with you tonight, and uh, hopefully just some, some of my experiences and some wisdom that has hopefully come from some of my experiences. Um, we've been doing a series here at Awaken on uh, spiritual disciplines. Specifically, we've been looking at aspects of the Christian life that we oftentimes don't think about as being disciplines. So we had a week where we looked at joy. We had a week where we looked at um, the Sabbath and how we spend our time. Tonight, we are going to be looking at community and fellowship. Community is a discipline in that it requires commitment, diligence, and perseverance. But community is so much more in that it has always existed. It is an essential element of who God is, of how he created the world, and of his redemptive work. The three persons of the Trinity, together in unity, existed in community before the creation of the world. And through that love and through that unity, they created the world and they redeemed the world. So tonight, we're going to focus on three aspects of community. We're going to look at the mindset of community, the practice of community, and the mission of community. Let's just take a minute to um, ask the Lord just to bless our time tonight. Jesus, we thank you just for the opportunity to be here tonight. We just pray that your word would pierce our hearts. God, that we would be moved to love you more deeply and to love others more deeply. Amen. We're going to be looking at uh, Philippians 2 as our first passage. But before we dive into Philippians 2, let's establish a little bit of context for what the Christians uh, in the Philippian church, what their situation was and why Paul is writing these words. So at the end of Philippians 1, leading into Philippians 2, at the end of Philippians 1, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now here, I still have. I wanna pull out a few phrases from this. Stand firm striving together, those who oppose you, also to suffer for him, the same struggle you saw I had. The Philippians were going through trials and oppositions. In these words, Paul writes to encourage them that in spite of their trials, and in fact because of their trials and oppositions, that they all the more needed to be united needed to be serving each other in love, and needing to be sacrificing for each other. 
It is within this context that Paul describes what our mindset of community should be. Let's take a look at Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. If your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue and knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The mindset that we should have towards community is the mindset that Jesus Christ has towards us. Let's focus in on the, uh, what's well, probably a hymn that Paul was quoting uh, from verses 5 through 11. And I just want to point a few things out about the text. So, in the text, we have three statements that descend from shame or descend from glory to shame. So, first it says he did not consider equality with God. And then number two, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And then number three, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So these are three statements. It's a progression of going from glory to shame. And then connected with a therefore comes three statements that are ascending going from shame to glory. And these statements are, one, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, and every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is because God descended from glory to shame that he ascends from shame to even greater glory. When we put others' interests before ours and lower ourselves as Christ lowered himself, we too get to experience the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us later in the letters to the Philippians that our lowly bodies will be transformed and that we will shine like stars as a result of our humility and our sacrifice. When we choose the shame of the cross, we are also choosing the glory of the resurrection. That is how the gospel works. I'm going to share a quote with you from a commentator on the book of Philippians. His name is Moises Silva, or I might be mispronouncing that, but here it is. It says, if the opposition being experienced by the Philippians calls for steadfastness, if steadfastness is not possible without spiritual unity, 
And if unity can come about only from an attitude of humility, then surely Paul must reinforce the critical importance of humility in the hearts of believers. And what better way to reinforce this than by reminding the Philippians of the attitude and conduct of him to whom they are united in faith. Paul appeals to the spirit of servanthood that brought Jesus to his death, a death with which incidentally has overflowed in life for the Philippians. You know, this passage can really be summed up by expressing the importance of sacrificing for one another. When we sacrifice within a Christian community, it increases our understanding of the gospel. We are given the opportunity to embody God's story of redemption by sacrificing for our brothers and sisters, by putting their needs above our own. And as we do this, as we sacrifice, our understanding of God's love and his sacrifice for us increases. Think of it, especially those of you who are parents. Think about when you brought that baby home from the hospital. You've never really had you know, any responsibility up until this point in your life, right? And then, you know, that whole first week, you're waking up eight, ten times a night. And over the course of that week, your love for your child grows immensely, doesn't it? Because you're sacrificing for it. The same must be true within our community. The more we sacrifice for each other, the deeper we will love each other. My wife and I have had the ability over just the course of our marriage to uh, welcome people into our home. Um, people have stayed temporarily for uh, periods of time. And this last year, we had the opportunity of welcoming in a, um, a young woman who was in a crisis situation into our home. And um, she was a new believer. And she stayed with us for six months and just became a really deep part of our family um, as a result of her stay. And on a daily basis, we were um, called to sacrifice our time, sacrifice our energy, and sacrifice our resources. Um, whether it was working on, uh, uh, we, we were helping her get her license, so driving with her, teaching her how to drive, spending hours on end working on maneuverability in the hot summer sun in my 2004 Hyundai Elantra that didn't have air conditioning, um, or picking her up from, from work in the evenings, running her to a, appointments throughout the day, um, middle-of-the-night trips to the emergency room. We were so blessed to be able to, to sacrifice for our sister as it created a deep bond that will never be broken. Get a little water here. From this situation, we really learned how to value and relish um, the opportunity to sacrifice for others. Sacrifice causes fellowship to be sweet and community to be rich because it reflects the gospel and the oneness of God. So within our home group, I think, I think not only are we called to sacrifice 
for each other, I think a lot of times we just have to sacrifice just to participate in community. In our home group, we have people, we have members who um, on a weekly basis, you know, every once a week, have to keep their kids up past their bedtime and then deal with the ramifications of what that means for in their life. You know what I'm talking about again, parents. Um, people who drive across town through traffic. And then just in general, our, our home group is just always available and um, makes himself available during the week when, um, when people are in need. And as a result, our community has grown in love. I think as we get older, as careers become more demanding, as family situations get more complicated, I think it becomes harder to stay in community. I think it becomes more effort to stay in community. But community is essential, and, if we, and we need to stop trying to just fit community into our lives. Rather, we need to organize our lives around community as much as possible. So something I love very much is I love fire pits, okay? How many people just love sitting around a good fire pit in the brisk autumn weather? Okay, so I'm not an expert at fires. Um, Nate Clementi is our um, kind of fire guru, I think, in the church. Would you say that's accurate? You're the fire guru, yes, yes. <laughs> But I do know a little bit about fires, and I know that if, you, um, if, the, if the fire is hotter, the new logs are going to burn quicker, right? You put a new log to a really hot fire, it's going to catch. And I also know that if you remove a log from a fire, it's going to eventually stop burning. I think when we remove ourselves from community, we stop burning and we lose our effectiveness for the kingdom. In order to sacrifice for our community, we need to make sacrifices just to be in community. Let's hone in on verse 8 and provide some clarification to some of Paul's language. Can we get verse 8 back up there, Brandon? Thanks. So it says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. We throw around the word humble a lot, don't we? You know, I think about the uh, NBA finals that just happened. The Toronto Raptors won, and their star player, Kawhi Leonard, um, they interview him, and he's talking about how great his teammates were. And we think, oh man, Kawhi, he is so humble. The humility that Paul is talking about here, the humility that Jesus is expressing here is not like that. It's chosen humiliation. And I want us to think about that. I want us to think about how the God of the universe gave up his power, his position, and his comfort and became a human baby in every possible way. And on the way to the cross, he was publicly beaten. Oh, man. It's like you get in front of people and you feel vulnerable, and so the words, like, hit you even more. 
and was dressed up in a costume intended to mock his very existence, forced to make the walk of shame up a hill in front of the whole city, stripped of his clothes and carrying a wooden cross. The crowd most likely jeered and laughed at his already broken body, collapsed under the weight of the heavy cross. And in further humiliation, another man was sent to carry it for him. Then on top of the hill again for the whole city to see, the creator and savior of the world hung, hung naked and mangled while being mocked and ridiculed for hours. Until he took his last breath. And in, and in the long drawn out moment of utter humiliation, humiliation that the world has never seen before or since, our God redeemed us. Our God redeemed us. He redeemed us by drawing evil in its entirety to one place in one moment of one time onto one person to be dealt with once and for all. He redeemed us by taking on the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. He redeemed us by bridging the infinite chasm that was wedged by our rebellion against a perfect and loving creator. When Paul uses the word humble, he means that Christ chose humiliation and it is his, in his humiliation that he receives the most glory. Think about this. God's glory was most revealed in an act, in and through an act of utter humiliation. Isn't the gospel just amazing? It's so simple, yet it's so vast. I feel like I'll be working out for the rest of my life just how the what all the gospel has accomplished for us. Henry Nouwen was a professor at Yale and Harvard. He's a, uh, an author that I've read a lot of his work. And I think he embodies this idea of chosen humiliation. He had many best-selling books, taught at prestigious universities, and was a well-renowned speaker. He visited a community of people with intellectual disabilities later on in his career, and he was deeply moved by how strong the bond of community was between the volunteers and the participants. And when they asked him to be their pastor, he left his, his career and joined the church and spent the last 10 years of his life there. So this was a community that didn't care about how high his IQ was, uh, how many best-selling books he sold, or how eloquent of a teacher he was. With all the pretense aside, he truly engaged in authentic community for the first time. I think not only are we called to be willing to be humiliated for each other, but I think we're also called to be willing to be humiliated with each other. So an example of this, um, I'm going to embarrass my wife a little bit. She doesn't know I'm talking about her now or didn't know I was going to. Um, but most Saturdays, she uh, heads down to an abortion clinic to just pray for the women who are in crisis and their unborn children. And they've formed kind of a community of people from across different denominations, different ages, different backgrounds, and they just really try to love on these women and pray for their unborn children. 
And as they are doing that, angry protesters yell at them, scream obscenities at them, and even get in their face and intimidate them. Being humiliated alongside brothers and sisters for the sake of the gospel is what Christ calls us to do. So let's kind of sum up this, this section, the, the mindset of community. Our ma- mindset of community needs to put others' interests before ours. We need to be willing to be humiliated for and with our brothers and sisters. And we need to take joy in sacrificing. The next section we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the practice of community. What does it look like to practice community? Let's take a look at Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christian community should not be homogenous. True community is not a group of friends with similar interests, similar backgrounds, who all have the same theological ideas. That is how the world does community. And in its raw form, it is consumerism. But community is not something to be consumed. It's not like going to graders and picking out your favorite flavor of ice cream which if you do don't go to Grater's and pick out your favorite flavor of ice cream, you should pick black raspberry chip because it is, thank you, thank you. It is by far the greatest. It's not like choosing which series you're going to watch on Netflix. It's not like going on Amazon and figuring out what random crap you want to buy. (laughs) Yeah. Worship style, quality of teachings, and the church statement of beliefs on non-essential matters should be non-factors. Community is not about what makes you feel good or comfortable. It's about discipleship. And true discipleship often takes place in situations where you are not comfortable. Paul realizes here that the nature of being a Christ follower meant in a diverse and urban city like Colossus meant that your church would be filled with diversity and would require hard work and great amounts of grace in order for it to work. I want to qualify some of these last statements by saying diversity is not the goal of community, okay? Rather, if we are truly living the gospel in our daily lives with the people we interact with on a daily basis, it's just a natural thing that will happen. Our churches will be diverse, right? We'll have people with different intellectual abilities, people with different income levels and different ideologies and different cultures. You know, our, my, the first home group I led at Awaken when, when Awaken was first planted um, embodied this. We... Um, we had a lot of different people. We kind of had a motley crew. We had a, um, a man who spent uh, a good amount of time in prison. We had a man who grew up in the occult. We had a, a guy who was a cage fighter. That's a first, right? And we even had an eccentric artist in our group. So <laughs> it was a pretty messy 
group a lot of the times, but it taught me not to be selfish with my relationships and to pursue the people that God put before me. So I want to ask, is there anyone in your life that God has put before you that he has called you to pursue that maybe you haven't? I want to encourage you to engage with him or her and to see how God blesses it. The ragtag crew from that home group, many of the members have become my best friends. We had all been, even though we had lots lots of things that, that were different, we had all been renewed in the image of our creator, as this passage in Colossians says. I got a shout out to um, Aaron Mays. He's, he's one of the guys from our old home group and he's here with us tonight. Um, came down from Lima and he's just a, a wonderful friend. And just thank you, buddy. I love you. Um, deep Christian fellowship and deep Christian friendship is not about compatibility. It's about a shared love for God and his people. Let's take a look at the rest of this passage in Colossians 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We are told to bear with one another in love. When you are deeply engaged in community, you open yourself up to be angered, frustrated, disappointed, and hurt. Think about any of the close relationships that you have. If you're married, your your spouse has definitely angered you or hurt you. If you're a son or a daughter to anyone, um, you've definitely been hurt or disappointed by your parents. If you are a roommate, if you have a roommate, you've definitely been angered or frustrated by your roommate. I have a lot of experience in this. Our beloved pastor, Jonathan Allen Kimball, who's not here to defend himself, I roommated with him for two years, and um, I had to bear with him in love and practice forgiveness quite often. I would wake up on on a weekly basis to him sifting through my underwear drawer because he forgot to do his laundry all the time, it happened a lot. (laughs) Deep Christian fellowship and deep Christian, oh, sorry, wrong spot. And I just wanna, let me me just make a comment about the roommate situation. I've been pretty long removed from having a roommate that, that wasn't my wife, but it is a wonderful time for those of you who have roommates just to practice this passage, to practice the act of forgiveness, to practice um, just what it means just to love somebody and to pursue somebody and to just um, show them the grace of Christ. When you engage in community, you're choosing to be vulnerable and therefore you would expect to have to bear with one another in love. The wording clearly implies this. There will be conflict and disappointment. It's going to be tough to love each other, and it's going to cost something to love each other. And unlike our entertainment-addicted selves want all the time, it won't necessarily be fun to love each other. When we immerse ourselves in community and bear with one another, 
it's easy for us to have um, judgmental thoughts or cynicism or resentment. We are quick to be critical of another couple and their parenting style, yet are we, are we quick to pray for them? Are we quick to pray for their kids? We're quick to be cynical to the person in our group who always seems to have needs or the person who seems to have just achieved success. But are we quick to get to know their stories? We oftentimes hold resentment towards friends or roommates who um, have broken trust or who have acted selfishly. But are we quick to forgive and are we quick to confront them in a loving way? We must be diligent and disciplined in controlling our thoughts towards our brothers and sisters. Unspoken bitterness is a cancer to a community. When we look at our brothers through the lens of sin and not through the lens of, the, of them being redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we break the bond of love and the communities will slowly unravel. Fellowship becomes a chore and community members distance themselves from each other. I wanted to briefly talk about uh, what healthy confrontation looks like in a church because I feel like a lot of times, at least from my experience, confrontation either doesn't happen or it happens maybe in a way that's not so healthy. So this is just from, just some, from, from experience and, and from uh, what I've seen. I think confrontation should never happen out of anger, resentment, or envy. The confronter should always seek to listen first before denouncing what they think is the other person's sin. The confronter must examine their own heart and the, objection, and the objective of confrontation is not to force righteousness on somebody, but rather to show a deep care for the well-being of the community member in the hope that they will repent. I think within our, within our small group, once a month we break down into guys and girls, and I think there's just been some really healthy um, times where confrontation has happened, where the members have been slow, or have been quick to listen, ask questions, and encourage repentance. So this text in Colossians says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Community gives us the opportunity to live out the gospel by forgiving just as Jesus forgave us. Let's take a little bit of a deeper look at forgiveness. And let's look, let's turn now, let's move away from Paul for a, for a little bit and move towards some of Jesus' sayings. Let's take a look at Matthew 18 together. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, he ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant was released, released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Before we dive into this passage a little more, let's talk about Roman currency. Woo, exciting. So 10,000 talents. The uh, annual revenue of the Roman Empire, which is like the biggest empire the world has ever seen, right? Their annual, this is almost, this is actually more than half of their annual revenue, the whole Roman Empire, according to some historians. In our terms, this is billions and billions of dollars. But what I think gets missed a lot, at least when I was growing up when I heard this passage, is that 100 denarii is actually a decent amount of money. One denarii would have been a day's uh, a day's wage. So the common worker would have made one denarii every day. So 100 denarii would be about four months worth of wages. Think about four months worth of wages. That's a decent amount of money, right? That has a big impact on your life. To owe 10,000 talents of gold is an absolute absurdity. The people who would have been hearing this in this time, Jesus' audience, that's what they would have thought. They would have thought this is an absolute absurdity. But the price, the price that God paid for forgiveness is an absurdity. And the point is not that because God forgave you so much, you should be able to forgive small offenses. Rather, the point is because God's forgiveness is so immense, you should even be able to forgive your brother and sister when their offense is great. My good friend Phil Kraus um, shared a story a little bit ago, a few months ago. You guys all know Phil. Um, just about a time where he really had to dig in deep to the Lord uh, to find forgiveness. There was a, um, a, a, a guy he was working with who was in his neighborhood um, that he was kind of mentoring and uh, Phil fixed up a house and had him rent it from him uh, at a really, really, really cheap price. Phil was basically giving the place to him. But after months and months of not paying rent and patience on Phil's part, he finally had to ask him to leave. And all of that generosity and patience that Phil, Phil expressed when he finally took back possession of the house that had been intentionally destroyed. So that patience and generosity was met with indignation. I just couldn't imagine being able to release that and be able to forgive that. But that's what this passage is calling for. It's calling for great forgiveness in light of how great our forgiveness is. When we forgive in situations that our natural urges reject, our understanding of our own forgiveness deepens in profound ways. When we choose to be 
men and women of forgiveness, we choose to be men and women of the cross and resurrection. Let's kind of sum up this second practice. The practice of community. We need to engage in authentic discipleship relationships with a diverse group of people. We need to bear with one another in love. And we need to practice forgiveness in ways that are costly to us. In the Colossians passage, passage, it says to bind everything with love. So far we have talked about the mindset of community and we've talked about the practice of community. Now let's turn our attention to the mission of community. And it's the love of a community that turns into the mission of a community. John 13, 34 says, A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, an author during World War II, wrote in his book, Life Together, human love constructs its own image of another person, of what he is and what he should become. It takes the life of the other person into its own hands. Spiritual love recognizes the true image of the other person which he has received from Jesus Christ, the image Christ himself embodied and would stamp upon all men. We are called to be set apart in the most clear way that the world will know we are set apart is by how we love each other. So what are signs that we are loving in the ways that set us apart as followers of Jesus? I think one of the most compelling indicators of gospel love in a community is something that I have been seeing recently in, our, in, in my own home group. When somebody in our group shares about Uh, another person that God has put on their heart that they're trying to reach out to and that God is calling them to pursue. The whole group makes it their mission to pursue and love that person even if they don't know them. The inward love of our community has overflowed into outward love of people that do not know Jesus. So my wife has a friend from work who she's been reaching out to. She actually came to our Easter service and has been coming to some social uh, activities. And she recently bought a house um, that needed a lot more work than she anticipated it needing. And it was her first time buying a home as well. And she was pretty overwhelmed about the situation. So our uh, home group one, one evening went over there for three hours and just completely landscaped the whole place. It was, it, was, it was a jungle, it really was. We had five weed whackers going. Uh, it, was, it was insane. But she was deeply moved by this act of love from our community. Some of the people she had never met were giving their time and their energy just to love on her. Even her neighbors were making comments to her about how amazing it was. When God's people engage in acts of love, it softens people's hearts and it clears paths for the gospel. I sincerely believe that she will come to know Jesus and will then have the opportunity to impact her neighborhood. In closing, we are going to take a look at one last passage that all of you know, it's one of the most common passages in scripture. It's read at weddings all the time. It's Corinthians 
13. And I remember being in college and uh, hearing this at a wedding and thinking, wow, this is a pretty um, intense exhortation as to how to love your spouse. I think years later, as I was studying Corinthians, I realized this wasn't written for people who are getting married. This was written for people who are in community together. In fact, um, this is kind of the summary, or, or the, uh, this sums up Paul's long, uh, his long uh, section on what a community is supposed to be like. So I'm going to re go ahead and read the words of Corinthians 13. And I want you to think about how radical it is within the context of people who have different ideas, who are not compatible, who come from different backgrounds. And I want you to think about the people in your life that you interact with on a daily basis. And I want you to try to hear this very common, common passage. I want you to try to hear it new. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm a, resound <clears throat> I'm a resounding symbol, or a, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it is not proud, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrong, it does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always hopes, always trusts, always perseveres. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will fade away. But these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let us be a church that loves radically and that loves deeply. God, we just thank you for, um, Lord, the way you created us we thank you for who you are, the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect unity and perfect community, and that you have uh, created us to share in that perfect unity and perfect community. God, we pray that you would just make us men and women who love deeply and um, who are willing to sacrifice and be humiliated for the sake of the gospel. Amen.